This is the European Tours Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton. Welcome to the latest European Tour Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton. I'm Andrew Carter and in each episode we chat to some of the movers and shakers, the great names of golf. This week we are joined by Justin Rose uh, who's with us here in the Walton Heath Clubhouse. Clubhouse at Walton Heath. Uh, we're looking ahead, first of all, to the British Masters. You are the yeah. host with the most in, in <laughs> yeah. October. Well, so looking for, I mean, looking forward to a special place, Walton Heath. Oh, absolutely. And obviously, um, it's been hosted by Paltz and Luke and Westy, and they've all done a great job. And I've been pretty sure of where I wanted to host it, you know, for four years now. When when they announced the fact that the British Masters are going to be hosted by these four players. Um, I was like, Walton Heath, that's where I'd love to take it. And uh, obviously it wasn't a dead set. We had to get a lot of help from the club and make sure that the club were happy for us to come in and uh, use their course, obviously, for the week. But all the the weeks prior to, obviously, these events take a lot of staging. So uh, it was great to get Walton Heath on board. It's one of my favourite golf courses. It was important to me as a player. Uh, I, I build my schedule around courses that I like to play, great tests of golf. And this is, you know, a top 100 course in the world. And... Uh, a, a real treat to play it. What do you do as a host to try and outdo the likes of of Poulter, Leon? <laughs> what do you What do you do? What do you do as a host? I mean, it's October, so it's uh, you've got a lot of time to plan. You have people to plan it for you. But what do you? What yeah, do you do yeah as exactly. Host? Do you know what it's about? Well, I think choosing the venue, I think, is in my opinion, was the most important thing because as professional golfers, that's where we're spending our time. That's where we're really. That's what we love to do. We love to play golf. So all the peripheral stuff, yeah, as long as we can make it fun for them, logistically easy. I'm trying to obviously attract a good field. I've been trying to get in the ear of a few players, as many players as I can. It's proving to be a trickier day than I than I would have hoped. But uh, yeah, I think the golf course, getting that in great shape. I've, I've had a lot of input in terms of the, the routing of how we're going to play it. We're going to play a bit of a composite course. And then just been working on some tee locations and... Yeah, so I've kind of really enjoyed that side of it, the staging of it from more from a player's point of view. Okay, well, the way this Life on Tour podcast works is it's sort of a bit like this is your life, but um, not yet at the end of your career. <laughs> okay, and, good, good. Or Desert Island Discs without the, without the music, or, or feel free to tell us your, uh, your favourite music during it. But I'd like to go back to the, the start. How old were you when you first picked up a golf club? I've been swinging a little plastic club ever since I was about one year old. Um, I was, you know, there's pictures of me with a curly mop of blonde hair, believe it or not, whacking a little golf ball around. Sorry, I'm going to start with the blonde. I was a blonde, beautiful cherub. When did it? <laughs> when did it turn? When did I, it? Yeah, exactly. It, it, about eight, nine, things started going south. To be honest. So you were bl- you were blonde until beautiful baby. And this is <laughs> this is growing up in this is initially in Johannesburg. Yeah, exactly. These photos. I, I moved to England when I was five with with my family. Obviously, I was born British. British passport. Never had a South African passport. But parents sort of uh, emigrated back to the UK when I was five and I guess that's when I started playing for real Hartley Whitney Golf Club was our first membership and I played nine holes there from the age of five pretty much daily I think my dad realised it was a good excuse to drag me along to you know that was the way he was allowed to go out and play golf by, by taking me along with him and I loved it he definitely dangled the carrot and stroke bribed me just perfectly to keep me interested I remember he set me some goals I think it was I think I had to break 70 for nine holes um, that must have been around the age five, six ish, just dinking the ball around, and you know, then I think I got a train set or something. But every day he would keep it fun. You know, if I could knock in a putt, I'd get a Mars bar on the way home or something like that. So, uh, good old fashioned bribery. I mean, I, I read that you know when your, your your dad Ken, he was in pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And so when he came over, it wasn't 
you know, instantly an easy time because it was a, a sort of the 80s and uh, yeah. at the time of the 80s recession as well. So it wasn't initially, you know, an easy life. No, absolutely. So he, yeah, he came over with a, with a job in mind and with a partner. And um, I think it was a, one of those really weird situations where the partner kind of up and did the dirty and there suddenly was no job, no company. Um, and then being in his 40s from South Africa in the 80s, found it very, very difficult to get a job. They came up with a bright idea of starting a swim and dancewear shop in the town of Hook, which, needless to say, struggled a little bit. <laughs> swim and dance? Yes. Okay. I don't know why, how, who. I think my mum was a, a rep on the road for, for something along those lines. And, um, so, yeah, it's, yeah it, was, it was tricky, definitely a tricky time of their lives. I think, as great parents do, they shelter their children. And uh, we grew up happy. And it's your normal, isn't it? So I think we'd had nothing to compare it to, and uh, I was still able to play golf. And uh, but yeah, the parents, my parents, made a lot of sacrifice in order for me to play golf and enter tournaments. And they spent a lot of time carting me around the country. And I think in those formative years, like I said, I probably didn't appreciate everything that went into it. But that was a lot of sacrifice on their behalf. Now you were well known for being a bit of a, a prodigy, and you know, before your hair had turned black, probably. Or dark, it's going grey now. Going grey now, got it from the full transformation from the, the the blonde afro that you had. But anyway, so you were. You, I mean, because you were very good, very young. Did you know that you were that this was a talent you had? I mean, people around you must have been aware. Yeah, I did. I, I knew that. I think uh, you always compare yourself to your peer group, and I was always beating my peers, my age group. I was always competing at a level slightly higher. You know, when I was 14, I was playing for the under-18s, and, you know, I won the Karis Trophy at the age of 14. So, you know, as a kid, that's how you measure yourself. You know, it's always a bit of comparison, which when I give advice to young juniors now, I, I try not to get them to compare themselves to other people. I think that it, we, we all develop at different stages, different ages, and as long as you're making incremental improvements year on year, you're eventually going to get to where you, where you want to be. You know, there are kids that are phenoms, and it's very hard if you're a phenom to continue to live with that expectation and to continue to improve. So I, I always try to tell juniors, just, just work on your own game. Always put yourself in an environment that you can continue to improve at the least, you know, in, in the least pressure as well. So play at the high, you know the highest level as you can without and overextending yourself because then confidence can be uh, damaged from that point. Were there other sports, or sw- swim or dance, or was it was it all just golf? <laughs> no, it wasn't all just golf. I played a lot of sports. I think it's important maybe till about fourteen to play as much as you can. That that was the cut off for me anyway. From fourteen, football fell by the wayside, cricket, tennis, all the things I enjoyed doing. Um, sort of fell fell away and I sort of single-mindedly focused on golf from about 14. So if we're going chronologically, you get to, what, the 97 Walker Cup and you played as yep. a 17-year-old. You'd only just turned 17. That was Quaker Ridge. Yeah, 17 in 10 days, randomly. I've, I've read that a couple of times because at the time, I think I was the youngest. I think that's been eclipsed since I, then. I should know that, but we have special elves who will find that out. <laughs> but off the top of my head, I can't tell you. But anyway, it's incredibly young to be playing the Walker Cup. It wasn't a successful GB and Ireland side, but uh, no. tell us about that experience. Well, it was my first time playing golf in America. I remember preparing for it. I kept hearing how hot it was going to be there. So in the little two-up, two-down house that we had at home, I would turn on the bath water as, as hot you know hot as I can get the shower running um, I would put on about seven layers of clothing and I'd go in and practice my putting for a couple of hours like sweating just to try and prepare so even back then I always That's had a, well you know even back then I had a mind uh, I had a, a love for trying to prepare for the for the big occasion and even to this day I, I enjoy the preparation as much as I do sometimes the performance so that was all the build-up to the Walker Cup it was an amazing experience like I said first time playing golf in the States 
playing in front of a huge crowd. I mean, it was probably a couple of thousand people, but that felt enormous. Mm. And funny story, I was playing with big burly Michael Brooks, mm. and uh, we were sort of out there. I don't remember what match, but obviously uh, first day to foursomes. And he's sort of, I think we planned that he was going to tee off the first, and then suddenly he just was like... Phew. No, no, I mean, that's just not feeling it, not feeling it. He says, get up there, kid. You hit it. So I was like, oh, all right. And I, I felt great. My whole warm-up went well. I was like loving it. Putting was going well. I couldn't wait. Got to the first tee. On the tee, representing Great Britain Island, Justin Rose. I was like, oh, my word. My legs kind of went a bit jelly-like. Teed up the ball. Got up there. Big cut out to the right, out of bounds. So the ironic and funny thing about that now is that Brooksy had to get up and tee one up on the first, which was... His whole plan went out the window. He stuck hooked it low left, and we were hitting our seventh shot from about 180. And when we failed to hold that one, we said, "Okay, lads, pick it up. Let's go to the second Yeah, all the preparation of the steam room at home. Yeah, to, to no avail. I mean, and then you fast forward a little bit. And it's amazing. It's 20 years since uh, since Burkdale. I mean, that that week, and everybody, even people who don't know golf, know a little bit about that week because of the the way it finished but again tell us about that week in the Open Championship yeah that was a magical week bit of a fairy tale week for sure I think I've nearly met every person that was in the crowd at Burkdale now and some who have lied and said they were there yeah right? maybe but uh, it definitely lives on in a lot of people's memories no one can believe it was 20 years ago they're like whoa that's, you know, so it just shows we're all, we're all getting on a bit now I think it was just that perfect week where maybe conditions and it was just so tough out there. It was a sort of a survival week. And I think as a young amateur, you're sort of maybe a little hardier and you play in those conditions a bit more often than sometimes uh, tournament pros do these days. So probably suited my game from that point of view. It was probably a bit of a leveller in terms of everyone's ability to get round. And uh, I played just a dream round on the Friday in some tough, tough weather, shot 66 and beat the field by two that day. So it just kind of shows what a, an amazing round that was. And that obviously built my tournament. And from that point on, I just rode the crowds kind of you know all the support that I received was just amazing and but there was a weird moment on the third round I was like I'm gonna win this tournament I just really had this calmness and belief that it the game just felt easy it was one yeah. of those weeks that if I hit it in the rough it didn't matter because I knew I'd get it up and down it was just I had this weird self I remember actually standing over the ball and not caring where it went it was a, such a weird sense of freedom and been trying to get that back ever since <laughs> so yeah so it almost when you say that you, you come to the final shot on the Sunday you were probably the least surprised then that it went in because you you, you just thought this is not meant to be but it's just I've, I can do anything this week yeah I mean obviously I, st- I teed off on Sunday morning still with the outside shot of winning but I kind of I think I made a couple bogeys coming in on that on that Saturday I don't quite remember but I uh, I had a goal just to finish in the top ten and I was coming down the 18th hole. I remember looking at the leaderboard and I sized it up and I could not finish outside the top 10. So kind of made a bit of a mess of 18, hit my tee shot left, hit my second shot further left. And it was just kind of a no pressure shot based upon what my goal was. I was like, okay, I've achieved more than I ever dreamed of this week. I'm going to finish in the top 10. Let's just kind of get out of here and enjoy the moment. And fairy tale ending, I suppose. It was that kind of week and hit the shot, up it went. Peter, let's get in, they cry. Get in, they cry. Yeah. And they are. Exactly. It was just uh, one of those amazing moments. And for a while, it looked like it was going to be my defining moment. And I guess there was a period of time where I kind of had to work really hard to not be remembered 
for just that kid at the you know at the open. No, you don't want to be remembered for the big red baggy jersey either. No, <laughs> good old days that. But the whole fuss still grow into it. Yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> no, it'd be sort of. Uh, <laughs> Figure hugging in a good way, um, but then you get you turn pro immediately, and you've got that welter of headlines as well. And so, if you're trying to do things quietly, turn professional and just build, you can't do it. Yeah, I think you know I've I've mentioned this a lot of many many times, but it's a misconception that I turned pro because I finished fourth at the Open. I, I lost the, in the, actually the first round of the British Amateur earlier that year, and my goal was to obviously win that, play the Masters, the Open. US Open, all of that stuff as an amateur turn pro the following year. When I didn't win that, I was sort of thinking, okay, well, I've played Walker Cup, I've won some other nice tournaments. What am I really sticking around for? Maybe the best place to learn about the Pro Tour is the Pro Tour. So I didn't think I was a finished article. Like I was saying earlier, I still knew I had to improve incrementally year on year on year. But I had a three-year plan. And I think that if I look back, that three-year plan went out the window after what happened to Birkdale. My expectations changed, everyone around me's expectations changed and had all these opportunities, these invites to play all of these tournaments. But I actually had invites to play the, the Dutch Open and the Scandinavian Masters before the Open happened. So I felt obligated to fulfill those sponsors' invites. So it was a bit of a whirlwind for me, a quick turnaround with everything that happened at the Open to tee up the very next sort of three, to three or four days later at the Dutch Open. And I remember playing a practice round with Nick Price and cameras everywhere. And I remember my team won the Pro-Am, ironically. So the media made a big deal of my first £720 check. Um, and then I got to the, to, the, to the tee or to the course. I was playing in the afternoon on uh, Thursday. And my name was already on the leaderboard. And I just remember all of that I found overwhelming, obviously. And I shot 77 or 78 the first day. And actually came back the next day and played one of the best rounds that I would play all year. I think I shot 65 or 66 to what I thought make the cut on the number. And I don't know if I just am remembering it this way, but it was like the last guy in the last group in the afternoon birdied the final par five of the day to tip the cut from even to one under. So it could have been not... So yeah, I could have got that 21 miscut streak out of the way very early. But did you feel that you weren't ready or that you, do, you didn't deserve all this attention? You didn't want all this attention, didn't deserve it yet, and you wanted to just work your way into it? Correct, yeah. This was all not part of the grand plan. You know, Like I said, I had this three-year plan. And then the plan was get a few invites on the tour, get a little feel for it, go to Q school, probably get a challenge tour card, spend a year on the challenge tour, graduate my way through. And, and after three years, one way or another have a fully-fledged European tour card. And ironically, that three years turned out to be a remarkably accurate prediction. You know, I ended up really getting my full card in 2001 and, and then keeping it from that moment on. Okay, and the whirlwind of attention obviously wasn't of your making, but did you feel any sort of, not resentment from the, the more seasoned pros, but you know, they must have been thinking, well, you know, this guy yeah. will find out, don't worry, he'll, he'll learn, as Curtis Strange once said to Tiger Woods, you know, He's not quite ready yet, and suddenly he's getting all this attention. Yeah, I would say so. I would say that there weren't there weren't many kind of arms around my shoulder, so to speak, out there. It was definitely it's a big boys tour, and I was receiving a lot of attention. And um, you know, you start to take spots in fields when you're pretty much guaranteed to miss the cut, and then that's why I think players start to resent it's playing opportunities for other people. You know, and and I think obviously in the first seven, eight, nine, ten events, of course, you know, you're you're in addition to the field. You, you know, you're, you're there because it's better for the tournament. But then there's a point that you become a bit of a sideshow. 
So I think that that, that probably did happen. Uh, I remember I was 17, I think, and the next youngest on tour at the time. Golf has changed a lot since then. I think Steve Webster, I've got a feeling, was the next youngest at 23. So between 17 and 23 is quite a big age gap. And then obviously my dad was around me a lot because I wanted him to be, because I didn't have any natural peers out there, so to speak. And uh, he started to get some heat for being around too much and he should let me go and, and what have you. But yeah, it was a bit awkward, to be honest. I remember one person that was fantastic was Seve. You know, just, he didn't have to say much, but he was just one, he was one of the people I remember just putting his arm around me and saying, mm, keep going, no? You know, just something like that. And it was enough. That's amazing, as you say, the, the, because I remember your, your, your father and everyone saying when you did Burkdale finishing so high there, everyone's going, wonderful, fantastic, great. And then suddenly it turns and people are saying, well, he's been poorly guided. This is just the way it works in the media. But that can't have been easy. No, you know, and I think obviously hindsight's wonderful. We would have done things differently, no doubt. But we were all learning on the fly. We turned pro, I think, not believing that I was the polished finished article so it just made my learning process harder under the spotlight for sure so yeah we did a lot of things wrong no doubt and I think my dad if he was here right now would hold his hands up and and say exactly the same thing but we didn't know any better if we knew then what we know now of course we wouldn't have done it but when you get to uh, you know deeper into that run of miscuts did you ever have doubts yourself that um no panic but just questioning you know is this is this where I'm meant to be yeah, there were, there were some dark moments, and I think that's when my mum came in and uh, sort of just put things in perspective a lot more, really, just about life and golf. And I remember a bit of a defining moment for me just was that I had to take the Open completely out of... It was such a skewing factor in my whole career. So I said, OK, let's just take the Open away. Who am I as a golfer? I'm a young, talented player. I've done great things in the amateur game. And I simply went, OK, I have the talent to play great golf. And if I couple that with hard work, things have to eventually figure themselves out. And that's what I put my trust in. I, was, I stopped trying to live up to this kid who was meant to be Britain's answer to Tiger Woods, which I think was what was hurting me for, for certainly probably a year or so. And I went back to, okay, I'm a kid who is very talented and knows how to play this game. So let's just now continue to work hard. Tell us how it did start to turn around and when you felt that it started to, to happen. Well, I think also was I started to not judge myself on making the cut. I started to judge myself on am I making improvements? So if I'd missed the cut by seven one week and I'd go out the next week and play a bit better, I'd say, okay, well, you know, you're getting there. You missed the cut by four, but, but things are moving. So I wouldn't hammer myself further into the ground. Oh, that's 18, that's 19, that's 20 missed cuts. I started to build it the other way. I started to create momentum out of nothing. I started to say, okay. Right, missed a couple of four this week. You're making improvements. You're getting there, and just build layer on layer on layer from from the ground up, and stop comparing myself to. You know, what I did. I put too much pressure on myself. I thought at the age of 17, it was so important to have a tour card, and have full playing rights, and I had seven invites to earn so much money, and that's how I was going to get on tour, and that's what I needed to do, and that's where I kind of tell kids now: just focus on your improvement. If you're 17, 18, 19, 20, as long as you're improving every year, you're going to get there. And I put way too much emphasis on having that full tour card at an early age. Now, and it's been talked about a great deal. Obviously, you know, your father had a huge role in your life. And as with so many people, the personal and the business side of things are intertwined. And while you were starting to get things going in the course, there was obviously the dreadful news that your, your, you know, Ken was, was diagnosed with leukaemia. So how did you... 
How difficult the time was that? How did you cope with that? Yeah, that was really, really, really tough. Um, I remember coming back from doing a tournament in Germany and I finished 11th, I think. It was my best finish by far on the main tour and came home and I was obviously excited. My mum and my dad were there to pick me up, which was slightly unusual. And then in the car on the way home, they told me that dad had leukemia and I was like, shocked, obviously, and upset. And it was a long road for him, to be honest. And I was always hopeful that he'll get better. In the first year or so, he, you know, there were signs of recovery and he got into remission and then then it became tough. He, when he sort of relapsed, you kind of knew that things weren't going to be very good. And I still am amazed that in the final sort of three or four months of his life, I was able to win four times. And I'm so proud and happy that that was to be the case because he deserved to see me get to the top of the game or to fulfill some of my potential and to see me win on, on a pretty big stage, winning the British Masters in 2002 probably gave him a bit of peace to be honest with you that he hadn't made the wrong decision and hadn't pushed me down a road that wasn't going to be fruitful for me and all of those sorts of things because I'm sure he questioned all the decisions that were made until then but yeah that was uh, still one of my most proud wins is the fact that he was able to see me win on the, on the tour I mean I remember reading a quote that you your dad said, okay, you have to be a strong one now. So you've got that, but also you're thinking, if I can do this for him, as you say, then it's, uh, it, it would be an amazing thing to do. Yeah, I don't know where I got the strength from, to be honest. It's one of those things that... You know, I... I, I he gave me confidence in, in myself. He sort of said, okay, you know, Justin will know what to do. He, I, th- I just felt that at, at that point, he told me to be my own man by by the time he was able to pass away, which... I think as a parent is all you're trying to do for your kids is to give them their independence to go and live their own life. And I felt like he'd achieved that for me. So I I have no regrets really the way thing, of course, I'd love him to have shared every great moment that I've had on the golf course and in my life and have met my children and all of that. But I feel like I have no regrets in terms of the quality of time we had together and what he was able to share with me and pass on. Yeah. And then... Afterwards, it's almost as if you had two, in the playing side of things, two careers. Quite a lot of golfers do. They have yeah. success and then they fall away a bit and come back. And you went through that as well over the next couple of years. Yeah, so obviously I got myself into the top 50 in the world around that time, 2001. I was 21 years old, which I think, if I look back at it, you know, again, I know it's a bit more common now, but if I look back at it 10 years ago, being in the top 50 in the world at 21 was... You know, despite being the 17-year-old kid who missed a ton of cuts, I really righted the ship pretty quickly and, and, and achieved some great things by getting myself to that level from nowhere. And then I made the decision to move to America. Um, I, in, I think in 2003, I played quite well in some of the majors, world events, um, got, in a, got a couple of invites on the PJ Tour, played really well in, the, in Boston, finished third, made enough money to get, to get a US Tour card. And that's something that, because I struggled so hard to get a European tour card, to kind of have a US tour card so easily and quickly without going to, to their qualifying school, I was like, I'm going to have to take advantage of this. And um, the, the goal was always to maintain my top 50 in the world ranking and play both tours. But when the top 50s began to slip, when I slipped out of the top 50, I, I made the choice to continue to play in America because my ultimate goal was to win majors. And I knew that if I wanted to win major championships, I was going to have to be comfortable playing in America. I always felt, and it's changed a little bit now, but I always felt back then it was a huge difference playing a European tour event and then turning up at a major in the States. 
versus playing regular PGA Tour events. It was still a big change going to a major, but it was only magnified by 50%, not 100%. So I, I just felt like if I'm comfortable in America, I'm going to give myself a lot more chances to win major championships. That was the rationale and the logic. And um, so, yeah, I would say 04, 05, 06, those were some sort of lonely times where I was a little bit forgotten about over here for sure. But I was doing good work. I was improving my game. I was working hard. I was setting the stage, I think, for, for what was to come. Obviously, 07 turned into a huge year for me. Um, it was a year that I sort of got myself back into the top 50. I played well in all the right events. Uh, I was able to give myself a great chance on the European Tour money list. Got to Valderrama that year with a chance to win the Order of Merit. Needed to finish top three, but there were obviously lots of scenarios in play. And I won there at Valderrama to win the Order of Merit. And uh, that to win the Order of Merit in 12 starts, that's probably also one of my most untalked about, but one of my most proud achievements, to be honest with you. And uh, that, that was a special year. I'm going to nip into the chronology of this, actually, because we're moving neatly along, but I forgot to ask you about uh, early days living with Ian Poulter. When was that exactly? Oh, yeah. <laughs> when did you? So like, where I, was this? And uh, I think I met Poulter. I think it was the 99 French Open, and I think I was first reserved for the tournament, and I was sort of you know hanging around on the putting green all day, and I think he was teeing off late one day or something like that, and just got chatting on the putting green and seemed like a cool guy, and he was playing also, I think, a bit challenge tour, forget exactly how he was there or why he was there or if he got his card or lost it that year but anyway we both ended up on the challenge tour for a year and that's where I met Poltz and that's where I started rooming with him and um basically where, where was this where were you or rooming with him in the hotels or yeah hotels just yeah. wherever we would go across Europe it would be side by side twin rooms um is he tidy are you tidier I, can, I imagine you're tidy. I was a disaster. He reminds me to this day that he would always, I would always leave a pair of socks or I'd leave a pair of shoes or whatever, and he would always pick it up because obviously I'd be out by the tournament on Friday. <laughs> He'd be there on the weekend. Do you think this was a cold calculating move on his part? Said, right, this guy's in a long run of miscuts. I've got the room to myself. The yeah, weekend. probably was. He's shrewd, old Paul. So, uh, but he's a great mate, and I think uh, we've been through so much together, and actually our careers did ascend pretty similarly for a, for a long period of time there. But I also learned a lot from him, no doubt. He was this very confident, he had prepared in such a different way. I was always trying to stay calm and cool and collected and probably inside my own head a little bit too much and he'd be getting ready for his round of the music pumping, going, come on! <laughs> <laughs> you know, sort of like, you know, really pumping himself up for the round. And it was more fun, no doubt. So I had a lot of fun with Ian and... I think having more fun on tour enabled me to start enjoying pro golf a bit more. It probably had a bit of a knock-on effect in terms of how I was playing and what have you. So, But yeah, I remember staying at Poulter's house, actually, for the British Masters 2002. Oh. So you never actually roomed with, so you roomed with them in hotels. You didn't actually get a place together and move in together. That's no, not, not Ricky Fowler style. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we just kind of hotel, just cut the costs. But everyone was rooming together there, but he was, he was, he was the guy that I would knock about a bit with. Okay, excellent. Let's move back then. As you said, 2007 things have been really starting to pick up, but off the course as well, because you, yeah, you had met. When did you meet Kate? Yeah, we've forgotten Kate. So we've I, forgotten I met, Kate. We've gone to Kate. Poulter before. Yeah. <laughs> so Kate, I met um, around 2001. We always joke, there's a bit of a blurred lines there of where things started officially and where they, they, you know, it was one of those. It was a slow burn, but yes, from 2001 we were really became an item and. She's always been a career girl. She's very intelligent. And kind of the, the decision, so I think 2003 or 2004, she made the tough call to kind of 
put some of her stuff on hold and come and spend time with me in America, move over and, and do all of that. So I was leaving family behind, but I was also starting this great new chapter of my life uh, with Kate. So we had some great times, obviously just the two of us being over in the States and traveling around and, and seeing all of that. So, but yeah, 2000, we ended up getting married in the end of 2006. Um, and that's that's interesting because 2007, your greatest year to date at that time. And you know, when you're happy off yeah. the course, happy on the course. Yeah, very much so. So we got married December 15th, I think. To well, I, I know it's December 15th. <laughs> Sorry about awkward. <laughs> December 15th, 2006. And I think, oh yeah, that's. I think I won the week before the wedding in Australia, which was an event that counted for the 2007 Order of Merit. So that so around my wedding, around that time, I won that event. Kickstarted 2007 and um, played some just good golf in the right events. Again, majors and world events really make big inroads on the European Tour Order of Merit. So I played well at all the right times, played very solidly in all the majors, and top 12 or better in all the majors that year, and just won at the right time there at the very end. And uh, that was a, an amazing feeling, yeah. sort of going from the kid who missed all those cuts to being Euro- European number one and following Monty, 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 you know, all these amazing names on that trophy. And it's still one that I should probably go back and, and look a little closer at because Seve, Feldo, I mean, you name it, all all my idols are on that trophy. Yeah, and you feel you've arrived and are sort of, a, I suppose at that stage now you feel you're a different type of player, a different standing of player. Yeah, you know, I got myself, I think, into the world's top 10 around that time, maybe up to number seven, I think it was. So yeah, we're starting to get to the real top end of things here, believing I can win major championships and then I think there was another little bump in the road after that, you know. Well, before that, though, the first, your first Ryder Cup in 2008, which obviously was, uh, you know, you'd be very proud of the way you played in your first Ryder Cup, but a difficult Ryder Cup for the European team as well. Yeah, it was. Uh, a bit like the Walker Cup for me. I came out of it with a lot of positivity personally, but I, I never really knew what winning as a team felt like, to be honest with you. I'd always say, OK, well, I did quite well. I had three points out of four and enjoyed that. And um, yeah, it was a shame that the team didn't win. And it was sort of very similar to my Walker Cup experience. And just fast forwarding, not until 2012 did I really understand what winning as a team feels like. And very contrasting, obviously, you're, you're talking about Medina there, but very contrasting Ryder Cups, but also in the way they were done. And everyone talks about 2008, and you can look back on it now, having seen yeah. subsequent captaincies, that it was a, of course. a curious affair. Yeah, of course. I mean, Felder got a little bit of heat for how he handled things, for sure. But uh, also being a young English player, I felt like, and this is maybe where he f- went wrong, possibly, but I felt like I had a really good relationship with Nick and I had his ear and you know we had a good communication and I felt like it was a very positive Ryder Cup I, I was able to voice my opinions on how I wanted to play if I wanted to play when I wanted to play not saying I had it all, obviously it all my own way but it was just a, between me and him it was a positive Ryder Cup but I could see from more of a European continental European point of view I think that that was the issue and um, you know clearly forgetting people's names and what have you <laughs> uh, but the details you know, details but it sort of started my real love for the Ryder Cup. I came out of it not cynical. I came out of it thinking, wow, that was a really cool experience. It's amazing you talk about 2008, 2012, what a contrast. And in between was astonishing because of the way it just didn't didn't happen for you at all at Celtic Manor. Yeah. The way you were told and the timing of the way you were, you were told as well. That, that honestly was a, a farce, yeah. Monty was supposed to have called the night before or something and didn't and then 
I think, to be honest, Eduardo Molinari threw a big spanner in the works there winning in Scotland, and I think it probably made Monty's job really, really difficult. But just to remind people um, of where you were, you were competing and competing well at the bar. I was, yeah. I was, I was, one, I was one or two shots behind the lead going into the final round. I, I was starting this, the round with the same score as Matt Kucha, who went on to win the tournament. But that caused havoc with not just me, but Paul Casey and Luke Donald. Paul was top ten in the world, didn't get the call. Uh, I think so you'd won Memorial as well that yeah won Memorial I was playing really 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 good golf too and Luke I think Paul was playing with Harrington yeah. and Harrington got the nod and yeah. kind of Paul's looking over and looking at Caroline and kind of saying there's nothing coming back and he's like oh this is weird um, Luke was out in seven under or something on that Sunday got the call heard he was in halfway through his round came back in six over um, Monty just didn't get time differences. He didn't. <laughs> I don't know. What I mean, for did. it to happen on the course, I don't know it's, what it's he didn't get. He didn't get a lot of things. <laughs> hey, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I, I remember the cameras burning me during my warm up because they're waiting like, for me to go into my bag and get my phone out. The camera is on me, and it's not a great way to prepare for a final round when you've got this added sort of intensity. And uh, I literally got the call 15 minutes before teeing off. No. When you got the call, when you saw the the call, you, I mean, I presume you're thinking this is going to be good. Yeah, you're hoping because it was, I, I, you know, I'd have picked me and Casey and probably Luke, to be honest with you. So that's the way I'd have done it, obviously. Um, would have won by three points. <laughs> and uh, I didn't get the call. I just remember Monty just saying, you know, on this occasion, I just, I just can't. Can't pick you. There's nothing he can say. He's just, you know, he was perfectly polite about it. Obviously, he was sorry. He knew. He, knew, he, he could imagine what a tough phone call it is to yeah. receive. But it was just the, the timings of it, and that's that's I think what we all ultimately we're all big boys, right? We can all handle not being picked for a team. I think it's just when it affects a, a tournament so much, so badly at, at an important time of year. I thought it was just a, an awkward. It was awkward, and it was awkward for Monty, I'm sure, and it was awkward for everybody in that situation. So the moral of the story is. Play your way in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Leave no doubt at <laughs> yeah. all. Did he end the call by saying "play well today"? Go yeah, I'm sure he did. Yeah. Um, so, I, did you watch that Ryder Cup? I mean, how difficult was it to watch? If you did, or he went. It went on to Monday, didn't it? Mm. That's right. I think um, I was actually doing a, uh, a corporate event for Zurich on that Monday, and I was playing a par three with every group, and I was sort of rushing back, check my phone, play one, come back, check my phone, and it was obviously a very, it was a bit of a nail biter in the end, wasn't it? Yeah. But I think, uh, of course, I mean, it's, Ryder Cup, if I'm not playing, it's one of the events I'd love to watch. The Masters I'd watch, the Ryder Cup I'd watch. Those are probably the two golf events. The that British Masters you would watch. The British Masters I'd definitely watch. So then, uh, you know, since we're on the Ryder Cup theme, 2012, you touched on it already. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to be on the 17th green right. at the end. It's some of the worst commentary I've done in that part because I thought it was racing <laughs> past. So, But it was uh, an amazing moment against Mickelson for everyone. All, so many Europeans on that 17th green. But the way it finished, could you sense that momentum was just flowing with the European team? Yeah, just to go back a step, obviously back to 2008. Good experience personally, but you know, I was like, yeah, okay, Ryder Cup, fun, cool, but not blowing me away like it has done for so many other players. First two days of Medina, I'm like, man, this Ryder Cup is overrated. Spent two years trying to get in this team. I spend, I play seven tournaments around the world that I probably wouldn't otherwise have played. It's a 14 week commitment away from my family for this one week. <sighs> Getting our asses kicked again. 
really, I'm over it. That's honestly how I felt. Really? So how I felt through two days. And then Sunday happened, and I, it turned into the best day of my life, the best night. Just can't even describe how cool. Apart from but, the wedding day, which, which date you obviously remember as well. So. 15th <laughs> December. Um, yes, but anyway, one of the best days of my life. Is that as pumped up as you've been in a golf course as well when that putt went in? Yeah, we could definitely feel the momentum switching, changing. The crowd went quiet, which is what you want in an away, an away venue. Um, again, Medina crowd were, were baying for their team to turn, out, turn around this Ryder Cup form. that they Well, obviously, from 2010, they wanted it back. And I was just trying to focus on my match, really, playing Phil. And I knew it was coming down the line. And I, when we started four points back, I knew that half a point was not going to do it. Had to win the match, had to win the match, had to win the match. I'm one down, three to play. And I'm kind of urging myself to stay aggressive in terms of it would be easier to say, OK, let's just get, get half out of this. would be a good result from being one down, three to play. But I kept urging myself to say, come on, you have to win this match. You have to win this match. Every point is massive now. Um, and I had a 10-foot par putt on 16 to stay one down, which is obviously a huge part if you're trying to win the match. Make that one, which is cool. And then 17, I remember just telling myself, stay aggressive, stay aggressive. Phil had missed the green left, and in the back of your mind, you hope he might not get up and down, but probably not the guy to be betting against. Yeah. And uh, the putt on 17, I just remember running it 100 times over in my head because there was a little knoll that I was putting over, and I kind of said, okay, if I start the ball there, what's it going to do? If I start the ball there, what's it going to do? If I start the ball there, what's it going to do? And I started to see, okay, I think I have to start it on that line. What's it going to do over this little knoll that I'm putting over and once it was over that it was kind of then just downhill kind of towards the cup and then it slowed up just a little bit at the hole and uh, I hit it going six foot by apparently <laughs> well, I wouldn't say six foot past but I, <laughs> listen, I was standing by the side of the green and I did think it was I did think I mean it was going at a, a, a yeah, good no, it pace was, it was a positive part for sure for sure And uh, but it was a kind of a part I felt like I had to make and then when it went in, I had to do this sort of slow sort of waddle. It was a waddle, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was a bit of a waddle. It was a bit like, come on, let's have it. It was sort of one of those. But inside, I'm going, inside, I'm running around the green doing laps. But I, had to, I said to myself, you're all square. That's it. There's no point in losing your mind now. You have, eight, you have 18 to play. This part means nothing if you lose the last. So I remember walking to the hole literally as slow as I could, picking the ball out. And I walked so slowly up to the 18th tee, just trying to gather myself. And um, as cool as the part 17 was, the part 18 for me was everything. Yeah. It was the nail in the coffin. It was the putt to win. It was getting the job done. And uh, I made it. And I knew all my team, or a few of them, Rory and I think Keimer and a few of the guys, and no, not Keimer, he's obviously on the golf course, but Rory and my wife, was, oh, the captains, I think it was Darren, and a bunch of boys were behind me make this part I turn around to give it large to them because I've always seen Poulter have these moments where all the team are around is late on the Friday or the Saturday and you know he kind of gets the boggle eyes going and he celebrates with the team I thought oh, this is my moment to do this I haven't quite had this in the Ryder Cup yet knock it in turn around to kind of say come on boy Phil's right there <laughs> alright in better just, face better, better just rein it in and shake his hand and, and do the right thing but I remember afterwards though and, and you know it goes back to the one of the guys who Put his arm around you in your early struggles and took Seve. You know, you were thinking, yeah, all kind of doing it for Seve that week. He was a massive inspiration on Sunday for sure. And you know, Jose Maria, as much as I love him and as much as he was a great captain, he was so emotional because he wanted this so much for Seve. Mm. He was so frustrated after Friday and Saturday. He ended up giving us a good blocking at one point. 
I think we were all a bit like, oh, okay, you know. But he was. He was just almost too emotional. Yeah. But you can just see how deep their connection is. And obviously, we had the Sevi logo on our sleeves and these amazing planes that paint it in the sky, do it for Sevi, go Team Europe. It was just incredible. And there was a little bit of a weird feeling in the air, I've got yeah. to say. Yeah. And I, I thought of Sevi out there. I kept trying to channel it. Yeah. An amazing day. Um, another amazing day, an amazing tournament from Medina to Merion the next year and uh, your major breakthrough once again it's uh, I suppose it's Mickelson who's, uh, who's closest to you yeah. with Donald in there as well but I suppose just to take us through the final moments I mean the one the, the shot that stands out is the, is your was that four iron? four, four iron on the last yeah so I remember Fuchs and I just did a great job prepping for that week we went up to Merion the week before we really got to learn the golf course we saw Merion as the members see it we pulled up in the car park we hit balls in the net upstairs we had lunch on the veranda we waddled onto the first tee I waddle a lot apparently <laughs> stepped onto the first tee so we, I, I got to love Merion for what it is and I think when you played it in the US Open, you were bust out to some, you're on the West Coast somewhere, you're in a big tent, you were climbing through people's yards to get back onto the property to tee off. So as, as we experienced it as a player in the US Open, it wasn't how you're meant to experience Merion. So the love that I had for the golf course was built the week before, which I think was really pivotal in terms of my enthusiasm for it. And I actually got off to a really slow start. So just to quickly give you a bit, so I had a local caddy when I was there and they explained the course to me and they said it's a bit like a good theatrical performance production or play they said um, the first six are drama the second six are comedy mm. and the final six are tragedy mm. so I started thinking okay this is kind of how the course presents itself tough start some birdie opportunities and some weird little quirky holes in the middle and then hang on for dear life coming in so I teed off on the 11th hole in my first round because of the way the road works 11 was where instead of teeing off 10 we teed off 11 and uh, I got off to a bit of a slow start but I played all the tragedy holes so yeah. towards the end and then I had after all of those holes I was into the drama holes which were the front nine so I was, a, I was four over through 11 holes but then I realised I had all the comedy <laughs> holes coming up which were the birdie chances yeah. and I got three shots back and shot one over good solid start to the US Open so I think those little bits of information that you can sometimes learn from a local caddy sort of framed how the course played for me all week long. And it's a little bit how Sunday presented itself as well. So coming down the stretch, I birdied, I think, 12 and 13 to get myself right there. And then I had those five holes coming in, which yeah. you better hang on. Was it, was it how you... I mean, you'd been in contention in majors before, but not bossing it as you were in that <clears throat> position there the man right. to be shot at did it feel as you imagined it would feel in the final round of a major it felt dare I say it a bit easier I felt that I had this great perspective as well that my game was beginning to mature over the next 10 years I'm going to give myself numerous chances to win majors the likelihood is I'm going to win some I'm going to lose some so I had this bigger picture in mind and I said okay in order to win it you've got to play freely you can't try and protect it guide it and when the moment presents itself you can't try and grasp it too hard because that's when it will slip away so I, I really stayed pretty free I remember 3 putting 16 and just saying oh well keep playing just yeah. keep moving on and finish par par and it was good enough so I think uh, that doesn't always happen I mean that sounds like 
pretty zen mindset and there's been major challenges where I'm wanting to snap and break and, and but on that occasion I was able to keep it really together and I had this this really long-term view of things yeah and then when the victory comes in the US Open traditionally some listeners may know or not know that it always finishes on, on Father's Day and in America it's a, it's a big deal you know, we sometimes might scoff at it a bit but for you it would yeah. have been uh, enormous and it was enormous yeah it was enormous and my dad was on my mind a little bit. I remember driving to the course on Saturday and I looked in the rearview mirror and I sort of just caught like a little bit of a reflection of myself and I sort of you know, looked in my eyes and my dad would always sort of say, like, grab me by the shoulders and look at me and say, how are you doing today? You could always see, you know, try and read, read my eyes is what he would say. So I sort of asked myself that rhetorical question, you know, how am I looking today, dad? I had a good conversation with my mum that morning before and she said, okay, I'm just going to go out and do it for dad today. But what do it for dad meant was go out and make him proud. I can't control the result, but I can control my performance and my behavior and my effort. And then Sean Foley sent me a brilliant text. He said, go out there today and be the man that your dad taught you to be and the man your kids can look up to. So he sort of brought the two generations together for me. And that was really good motivation and inspiration for the day. Yeah. I, I know we're going to leap forward a little bit here, but I do want to talk about the Olympics because that was an entirely different experience. and. Yeah. You and Kate are taking, I mean, she's a former gymnast as well, so just taking in the whole Olympic experience in Rio was, and, and you, so many players had said, mm, Olympics is not for me, or I'm not going to get in there for Zika or whatever, I just yeah. don't want to be there, but you embraced it from the start. I did embrace it, I just thought what a cool experience, what a cool opportunity, it might be a once in a lifetime opportunity, four years down the track, it's, it's very hard to say, okay, well, I'll do the next one. You just don't know if you're going to have that opportunity again, so I wanted to take it, just to be called an Olympian was enough for me for whatever that meant if it was deserved or not whatever just to say you've been to the olympics done it very cool kate was obviously very into it she was yeah like you said a gymnast growing up but she was a sports acro gymnast which she's always hoped would be olympically recognized at some point the fact that golf got there before her it was like eh. <laughs> slightly jealous but um <laughs> she came down to rio with me we just loved it i was in the olympic village for a few days and then i moved out to a house near the golf course just because that's how i like to prepare and i wanted to obviously give it my best shot so I prepared for it as I would for any major championship just when but, you're in the village so are you looking at the other athletes and trying to guess the sport do you think they're looking yeah. at you and, and trying to are you trying to <laughs> flex a little bit and some, those legs <laughs> I don't know about that I wonder what he does equestrian <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I, that was a huge part of it just being around 10,000 like minded people in the Olympic village watching other athletes walk around oh that's got to be a high jump that's a long distance run a definite sprinter there yeah, it was kind of cool trying to pigeonhole people. But I remember training with the Rugby Sevens boys in the, the uh, Team GB had this amazing school that we that was sort of our camp. And I went and trained with those boys. And I kind of was a little bit jealous. I thought, wow, to be in a team environment, you know, when I train, I'm always training by myself. I've got to have that discipline to do it by myself. It can be a bit boring. But they were like slapping each other in the face. Come on, you know, one more. Poltered Yeah, and I thought, wow, that, that, you know, that looks like fun. But they they motivated me just to not be this nerdy golfer in the corner. So I was giving it a little bit extra. And uh, watching the badminton girls train, they're deadlifting, and I'm thinking, okay, for, for badminton, mm. it's amazing to see the effort, the training, the the 1% that everybody's trying to extract to be their best. So the Olympics was, it made me tick all the boxes. I, I know how to perform well, but it sometimes requires doing a lot of things well. Yeah. So I was like, check, done that. I've ticked every box to try and play well. It doesn't always mean you're going to play well. But representing your country, I think, often kind of encourages you to be the best version of yourself. 
Yeah, and the cross sport mingling went on. You had a hole in one. And yeah. You give the ball to Niall Wilson, was it, and the the gymnast? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah he's a he's a keen golfer. He came out to watch. I've I've stayed in touch with him since Rio. But yeah, the hole in one was amazing. Obviously, I think that that sort of blew up news wise. Anyway, first hole in one in golf in the Olympics, 112 years, blah blah blah. So that that was a really cool experience. The funny thing was, Fuchs and I were fighting about the club that day. It was oh, no, it's a six iron, that's seven. No, it's not seven. In. <laughs> yeah. I forget who pulled the right one. I'm going to say it was me, but yeah, but probably not actually talking about Fuchs <laughs> because um, you know some players change caddies with regularity. Others have great stability, and you mm-hmm. have had great stability for a long, long time. You've been with. Mark Fulcher, Fuchs. Yes. Uh, so tell us about that relationship. Yeah, 10 years now, um, which is amazing. We've definitely been through our ups and downs, but he is absolute rock. He's loyal to a fault. And what I love about Fuchs is he's not in it for the paycheck. Of course, he gets paid well and all this, and you know, he gets paid well when we do well. But he's willing to put those weeks in that are unpaid. He loves to come up to major championship venues with me beforehand, prepare. You know, he, he goes the extra mile. He's, he's not like, okay, boss, they're the clubs on Sunday night. Packs them up. Right, boss, I'll see you next week. Midweek, he'll be texting me, "How you doing, mate? Can I do anything for you? Do you need this for next week? Have you thought about that?" Blah. You know, he, he's he's in it. We're in it together, and I think when we win, we win. I guess in we. Yeah. And, how, did, uh, how did you get together? My previous caddy, Mickey Doran, simply oh, yeah. had enough of me, <laughs> um, and he sort of said, "I think food will be good for you." I mean, you know, Mickey had had enough of me. I think that's accurate. But also, we were still we were, we remained friends, and he was like, "You know what, Rosie? I think I think food will do a good job for you. So, good luck." Yeah. Well, have a great success. We've talked about uh, a lot of the, the highs. I mean, one, I don't know if it is a... Well, it will be a low, I'm sure, but getting so close to winning the Masters. So tell us about yeah. the, you know, the, the 2017 Masters. <clears throat> I mean, a, a great showdown in its, yeah. own, its own way. It was a loss for sure, but it wasn't a loss. So you can lose tournaments. That's just one I didn't win. And uh, I don't have a heavy heart about it. You know, if I, if I, like, like you're forcing me to do now, like when I walked in here, it's not a big part of my life. No. But when I when I'm forced to reflect, I'm like, mm. that's what we do. Yeah, it would be it would be one that would have been amazing for yeah. sure. I still believe I will win the Masters, and so it might be a bigger deal ten years time if I haven't done that. But I played really well on Sunday. I, I really thought it was mine, and uh, if I look back at it, Serge rode his luck on a few occasions, and it's the way sometimes things go. Uh, Henrik Stenson reminded me that I rode my luck in Rio. There were, there were a few occasions I hit poor shots, tumbled through some rough. I hit a great shot out of a bush on 12 that went on the green. You know, that was my day. And that Sunday, as well as Serge and I both played, it was his day. There were just a couple of little breaks. That, 13th hole. Yeah, exactly. There were a couple of breaks that went his way down the stretch. And, you know, I've hit a great putt on 18, which I everyone practices that putt so many times. And it's always a cup out to the right and just gently, gently moves the whole way. And, Yeah didn't fall for me on that occasion but my execution was good I remember saying to myself right Rosie this is the part you've seen you've dreamed of you can't force it in the hole just make sure you do everything right head still release it whatever your sort of process is just commit to that but yeah I mean obviously gutting absolutely gutting I was down probably for a month after that well I'm interested in how golfers deal with because we talk about the successes and the moments of celebration and the days after but how easy or rather difficult it seems to be is it to, to let go of those well, I always plan a holiday right after the Masters. So I had a bunch of friends out. We, you know, we went away, got away from golf. So that was probably perfect timing on that occasion. But I think my motivation disappeared for a while because I worked so hard into Augusta. It's such a focus of mine. I worked so hard leading into it to get so close, it not to happen. 
it took me probably a month or six weeks to start to pick myself up and go, okay, right, the next one, on to the next one, right, you know, and to rebuild and to re-energize. But I don't ever look back at it and, I'm, and I think it's one that really that I let slip. It's just one that didn't happen for me. I felt like I played great on Sunday. To tee off in the final group with the lead, with Sergio, tie the lead, to both shoot 69, to both go at each other the way we did down the stretch. Um, it was just one of those events that not two of you could win. Okay, we're getting to, towards the end of our life on tour podcast here, but so what about life off tour? Leo, Lottie, how old are they now? They're nine and six. Nine and six, good. I'm glad you got their age yeah. like, straight away. <laughs> You're not one of those fellas that goes, how old are they now? They are yeah. nine and six and, and, and life as well. You are, mo- are you mostly in the Bahamas or are you? Yeah, we are mostly in the Bahamas. You know, I kind of call it a halfway house really for me between America and England. It's an easy place to travel from, believe it or not. Uh, I like getting away from tour life. I like not seeing 50 other tour players on my weeks off. Um, so it works well. I think it's a good place for the kids to grow up when they're young, sort of slightly slower paced, a few more interesting hobbies and activities. Are they golfers at all? No, Leo is so competitive that he thinks, okay, that's how golf should be played. That's how dad hits the ball and I can't do that yet. But he's so annoying because he's so good. Really? He's got a beautiful swing. He could be so good. But for him, he, he, he doesn't want, you know, you asked <clears throat> when Leo was three, I said, Leo, what do you want to be when you grow up? He said, Leo Rose. So, Good answer. Yeah, he's very independent. He's very much his own man. He's not willing to walk in my shadow one bit. So he's kind of keeping golf at an arm's length. He's football mad. He's very good at football. He's very fast. He's both-footed. He, he loves it. Can and, you play football with him, though? I suppose that's a bit risky. That's uh, what Garcia has do yourself a mischief. But. Well, five weeks ago, I rolled my ankle really badly in the garden with him. Right before Colonial, went right over the top of it. Big crack. As soon as I did it, I thought, that's the US Open. I'm out. That's, that's eight weeks. I thought I'd either broken my ankle or done something really bad and uh, I was just in goal but he missed the goal and I was kind of trotting off to get the ball got to the ball just did like a little shuffle twizzle turn went right over the top and uh, did he show any sympathy or did he go weak and just continue to play he said Dan no, you, you can still be in goal you just have to stand there yeah no no sympathy <laughs> are you, well I mean there we are are you competitive with him do you let him win or I I push him, so if we are... Actually, I can't beat him at football anymore. He's, he's, mm-hmm. way, he's, he's gone past me now, but when he was sort of six, seven, I would go four or five goals up just to see his resolve, just to see if he would chuck it in the towel or two. But then I'd sort of let him come back, keep him interested, and then I'd sort of make him win it at the end if he was going to win it. But I would always test his resolve. Yeah, but everybody who has children has learned a bit from their own parents, so are you passing on that sort of knowledge that you had from your, your parents in, in raising you? I hope so. I hope just sort of I try to lead by example. I think that's the best thing to do as a parent is just to try and walk the walk, not always talk the talk, but it's hard. You know, he does. He's a waddle the waddle. Waddle the waddle. He's a very he's a he's a boundary pusher. He's you know, he's that he's he's a challenge. But my little girl, let's give her some attention yeah. because often in our house Leo dominates and commands all the attention. But she's amazing. She really is. She's so funny, she's so easygoing, bright, beautiful. She's the opposite to him, really. She she'll miss the golf ball and giggle and laugh and think it's great and funny. And she she's got a great imagination and she loves to play teachers and schools and all that stuff at home. So they're a lovely sort of complement to each other because they're so different. So just to wrap things up, thirty-seven now. Thirty-seven. Where has the time gone? Thirty-seven now. What do you have specific goals going forward? That you, some things that you'd still like to achieve. A lot. I think I've had a great career. I think that Fuchs once asked me, right, right, Rosie, would you wipe the slate clean and do it all again? If someone said to you right now, take all of your achievements, throw them away, 
rewind the clock, you're 17 years old, would you give it another go? That's a great, great question. And I sort of wobbled and I said, maybe I wouldn't because I know how hard it's been to get to this point and I've been very fortunate to have won what I've won. So I'm very happy with where I'm at, but I'm determined to make now the next push incredibly important. I think that I can go from good to great maybe in the next five to eight years and that would mean Hall of Fame career, win another few major championships, do another a few other cool things along the way. Okay, but uh, you will look back, I'm sure, to the miscuts, to the, the, yeah. the young boy at Burkdale with a huge sense of pride in what you've achieved. Y- yeah, absolutely. I think it's been a journey and it's sort of come, come around full circle and there were moments where I doubted it, doubted myself. And, uh, but yeah, you have to earn the right to look back and, and be happy and I think that I've had a lot of help along the way too. Just give a quick shout out to my team that have been with me a long time. I've, I'm not in this alone. Kate is the rock She's front and centre of all the decision making. And then I've obviously had Fooch, which has been right by my side. My trainer, JB, he's been with me also about 10 years. Foley, 10 years. Really had a great squad now. So, um, yeah, fortunate. You know, maybe I'm CEO, but part of being a good CEO is putting good people around you to make your life easier. I kind of say it's like bowling with the bumpers up. If I start to go off track, there's someone just to nudge me back on, on path. Yeah, you've come a long way since the, the blonde-haired boy <laughs> growing up. Justin, thanks for talking to us. Cheers, mate. Too. Thank you. Yeah, Enjoy it. Thanks for listening to the Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton. You can get in touch via Twitter and Instagram at European Tour using the hashtag Life on Tour or on Facebook. Subscribe now and if you enjoyed the show, feel free to rate and review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts.